You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joel. Book of Joel. That's on page 871 in the Red Pew Bible. I do encourage you to follow along uh, in the text this morning. Uh, you might wonder to yourself, what, what, what happened to Matthew? Where, where did that go? We were on a train and we were kind of moving with Matthew. And uh, Matthew is divided into five major sections. And I, I, it's been a habit of mine to, if I'm particularly going through a long book like Genesis, a few years ago I went through Genesis and I stopped at major sections and then did a change and came back later to it. That's how I'm handling Matthew because it is a long book. And uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Joel. And then we're also going to look at Obadiah um, in the, the coming weeks. Uh, those are the next, that's where I'm headed uh, through till, till uh, Resurrection Sunday, uh, Easter, and the Passion Week. We'll have a Palm Sunday message as well. Uh, but we should, Lord willing, uh, finish those uh, before then. But Joel, Joel uh, is quite a, quite a book. A, a couple of years ago, a famous, uh, I would say, a megachurch pastor in the greater Atlanta area said that uh, Christians need to unhitch uh, from the Old Testament from their faith. Now, that kind of struck everyone as very, uh, very startling thing to say. Uh, and really, there's really, it's not a new tendency, even in the days in the early Reformation, Martin Luther, some of the districts in Germany actually prescribed to area pastors not to preach anything but the New Testament. And they said, because it's most profitable to the common people and most edifying to the churches. And this has been a struggle uh, through the centuries for Christians to find uh, uh, the significance in the Old Testament that carries over into the new and, and the, the life that we live now in Christ. Um, on the one hand, the Old Testament is at times charged as being irrelevant. Sometimes it's uh, charged as being unedifying. But I believe neither of these things are true because Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration by God and is profitable. I don't know if you've ever really stopped to think about what Bible Jesus and the apostles used. Well, Jesus' Bible was the Old Testament, and that was the scriptures that were deemed to be profitable and useful for doctrine and instruction. And Joel's uh, message actually was the very first Bible text that was used after Pentecost or during Pentecost uh, to express truth to a new church. It was from the book of Joel uh, and it's a message I think needs to be uh, returned to, and we're going to return to it over the next uh, few Sundays. And uh, major themes that are in this text, there are three uh, that kind of come back several times. And the first of these has to do with the day of the Lord, of impending, coming, imminent judgment that is going to come. And there is also a heavy em emphasis upon the Lord's sovereignty as we anticipate calamities in our world and in our lives, and also a heavy emphasis upon the Spirit of the Lord and how integral the Spirit is for those who follow uh, Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament and of the New. Uh, there is a continuity that we, we need the Holy Spirit as a part of our everyday living, and it's important for us as we anticipate the day of the Lord and his eventual return. 
Furthermore, change, change occurs when we act on the belief in these three themes. We are motivated as believers to change, recognizing that God is going to come to give an account, that there is a sovereignty to his purposes, and also that there is help through the Holy Spirit to be able to change. And so all these things are held together in the book of Joel, and we're going to work through them. And these themes challenge us to be a people of hope, a people that not just get so focused on all the calamities that are happening around us and and, and happening to us, but that we look up and we become people of hope who become profitable people of good works, and we tell a countervailing story to the world around us that Jesus is coming again, and he is going to set all things straight. It's a very powerful tool. Story is an important part of our living in this world. Propagandists uh, specialize in storytelling. One tool that they use in the process of telling a story is the term that maybe we're tired of hearing, but is the word misinformation. Misinformation is a false or an inaccurate information, especially that which is deliberately intended to deceive. Now, it's an ethical question whether the government should be permitted to use its agencies like the CIA to use misinformation, even if it serves the greater purpose of the protection of our nation. I think that's an ethical question that that has to be wrestled with. But even on the other hand, the use of misinformation internally to steer a nation in a direction, that also is something that has to be taken into consideration. And we would probably say that's probably not something that we should have our government doing because misinformation is an instrument of warfare. It is something that is supposed to be used on an enemy. Now, Satan is our enemy, and he uses information, and he uses warfare to cause us to believe in alternative stories that purport to give us the the sense or the belief that we can find happiness apart from Christ. Satan is a a stealthy... (laughs) A serpent who knows how to engage in propaganda war information. A good false story is really hard to dislodge. And if a story is believed strongly and the story is actually false, it may take a significant degree of calamity in a person's life to un settle them from their story. And calamity is something that's very significant in the book of Joel and reminds us that God wants us not to believe the stories of this world, but to believe the greater story. See, misinformation tells us that we can find alternative ways to find happiness. And so we ought to stop listening to the misinformation of this world. One example of misinformation. You know, I, I, uh, I think most of us would say we really don't believe that if we have stuff 
that that will make us happy. And so actually, in our world, there is alternative methods to get you to purchase things based on another story. For example, Patagonia tells me and shows me breathtaking vistas of hiking terrain and mountain peaks down in South America, and it shows me all of these breathtaking views so that I want to put myself into that story as if I am an adventurer and I need to own these pieces of material to show others that I identify with this story. It's a remarkable way of marketing. And so we buy things that are associated with the story. Now we're living in a, a day in which propaganda is a spiritual warfare. It is all around us, and we have to use our wits about us. It's a battle for our soul. It's like we walk through the world, and it's like walking through an open field in the fall. Have you ever walked through the, a field in the fall and felt these? Actually, you get home, and then you discover you have these burrs that are stuck to you. And, and, and you, you pull them off, or maybe you get a, a, a dog that they're all through the tail. That is really hard to, to get off. You pull them and there's all these, there's a hundred little pieces you're gonna pick out, right? Well, in many ways, walking through the stories of this world, they get stuck to us and they, they tempt us to believe that there is happiness apart from Christ that we desperately need. And to get rid of these burrs takes a lot of effort. And calamity, is one of those gifts, if you will. It's a warning that shows us that we ought not believe these alternative stories. Calamity is God's gracious gift to turn our hearts from false narratives to the truth that we desperately need. This is, I believe, a central plank in Joel's message as he introduces us to the theme of calamity this morning. Calamity causes pain. And whether it's a physical pain, we, we experience a personal tragedy and we feel that personal pain, or it's something that comes on a psychological level towards us and we feel it. Pain, though, we need to take note, is God's megaphone. It's God's megaphone to cause us to wake up. C.S. Lewis, the author of the children's stories about the Bible-like land of Narnia wrote his most famous lines when he said this, maybe you've heard this before, that pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I don't know if you've noticed, even this week, maybe you were watching Monday Night Football and you saw that, that player, Damar Hamlin, fall to the ground. It was a moment of immense calamity. And no one knew what to do. But they did what would be prohibited, typically, right? Prayer. People turned in a moment of calamity God. 
calamity is the clanging of cymbals to wake us up, to get us, get our attention when nothing else may seem to work. So this morning, we're walking through just the first 12 verses, and in the first four verses, we're going to read them, and it shows us that calamity exposes our mortality. Read verse 1 with me. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. It's quite the rhythm there in that last verse, and really even in verse 3 of progression And Joel, in verse 1, by his own existence, points out really the immortality of God himself. I'll show you how I derive this. Uh, Joel is a, it's a very popular Bible name, actually. You probably could identify a few Joels that you know. Uh, You ought to ask them at some point, do you know what your name means? Uh, Joel literally means... uh, It means um, Jehovah is God. Jehovah is God. And we're told that he's the son of Pethuel. But really, that's all we know about this Joel. There is really nothing in the uh, greater historical record of the Jews. There's nothing that we have that could identify him or even his father, uh, Pethuel. All we have is his name, which literally means that Yahweh, that's the personal name of God, and that's all we know. Well, Yahweh is literally I am, or I am the self-existing one. The self-existing one who is always there in the background of everything that's going on. It's the one who we might be tempted to take for granted. He is the one who is always existing because he has immortality. Joel, on the other hand, Joel, whom we don't know a lot about, this is it. He had one generation, and that was it. God exists in the background of every generation, and he is the one who is always there. God is immortal, but we are mortal. Verse 2 and 3, Joel points here to the mortality of man. Uh, Not only do we not know who Joel really is, we don't even really know when he lived. There's no identifying kings that could tell us exactly where in the chronology he may have lived. Uh, The best option that we can come up with is that maybe 500 to 600 Uh, years before Christ, and that would have been during the founding era of the Roman Republic uh, in Italy. And at that time, Jerusalem was being sacked by Babylon, and Babylon was then sacked by Persia, and then Persia began this resettlement of expatriates back to their homelands that had been taken over by Babylon. 
and the Jews were returned to, were allowed to return. And then at that time period, uh, the Persian Empire was driving westward. They were moving into the Indus River Valley. That's about all that we know. And, and really, this kind of lack of detail can drive historians nuts. They can, they can, they, it just, they want more. They want more detail, and there's really no detail. But this is in its own right an evidence of our own mortality. Our own mortality. Your story, if you have a story to tell, may be told by maybe one or two generations. But after the third or the fourth generation, their the great 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 grandchildren will be hard pressed to even be able to declare who you are in this room. Well, that may be a little bit depressing, a little bit depressing. But what this tells us is that Joel is actually encouraging us to tell the story to other generations because we have mortality built into who we are. This is what he says in verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to another generation. What stories would they have been telling if they were being faithful to the instruction of Moses? What stories would they have been telling? Well, they would have been telling the story of Passover. They were instructed that when the children saw them celebrating the, the Passover, the Seder, and the, the, the lamb that was going to be consumed, they would, were supposed to say, you know, when their children asked them, Dad, what does this mean? They were to tell them of how God delivered them from Egyptian slavery. When Israel passed through the the Jordan River, they hauled out large stones and they set them on the other side of the river so that it could be a memorial that when the children asked them, what do these stones mean? That they could then recite to them of how, how God had taken them through uh, the Red Sea and then taken them through the Jordan River. These all wonderful stories to tell. Uh, stories, I, I recently heard a story uh, told of a Canadian uh, sniper whose company marched through uh, northern Europe through uh, the Netherlands and uh, as I was watching this I was struck by the fact that the old man who was telling his story had actually confessed that he had never told his story until that moment. He had never told his story even to his own family and after telling his story he very likely only lived another year. See, significant milestones are meant to be told. They're meant to be shared so that other generations do not have to live through the same pains that we have experienced. The wisdom that we have gained, gained through the years are intended to be imparted to other generations. Uh, uh, this past October, Abby recorded her mother sharing her conversion story so that it could be passed down to subsequent generations. What's really unique about Joel here is that he begins to, he changes the dynamic. We are expected to tell of God's deliverance, 
that's implicit throughout all the Old Testament stories and the law. Joel, on the other hand here, does something very striking. He changes the pattern of declaring the times of deliverance to declaring and sharing with another generation those times in which the heavy hand of God's judgment has come upon them. It may be a little bit counterintuitive, but we have to, we have a responsibility to impart the wisdom that comes through suffering that we experience and share that with another generation so that they might be warned to take a different trajectory. And in verse 4, Joel points out the role of calamity in divine judgment. Verse 4, we, we saw uh, the locusts being described as invading the land of cutting and of, 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 of swarming and hopping and eating and destroying. And the picture is really terrifying, actually. It kind of reminds me of a, a zombie apocalypse. Uh, Noah, my son, uh, encouraged us to watch uh, World War Z over Christmas break. And I don't know if you've ever seen it. I don't know who makes it. Why do we watch these things? And you see all of these, it's terrifying. You see people sacrificing themselves so that they can get through an obstacle. And it's, I, as I was thinking about locusts, my mind was going to that horrific sight and the swarms of locusts coming, just sacrificing themselves to get over obstacles and so that everything could be consumed. Swarms of locusts are a dreaded, dreaded scourge, especially in the ancient Near East. And... We might be able to control them better today. You don't, you don't really hear a lot about locust swarms because now they're, they're tracked by satellite. They're stopped by trucks that meet them with pesticides before they can become larger. But in the, in the ancient world, the, the winds would come from the southwest and, and from Africa, these swarms would come and the, they would stay until the wind changed and take them in another direction. And when they came, nothing nothing could be done. It was terrifying. It was an absolute act of God. And we in our modern era need to be very careful that we do not allow a naturalistic mindset to reframe the events that occur in our world. We need to recognize that pandemics and responses to pandemics can equally be the hand of God. Judgment upon God's people and also nations, the whole world. Locusts, in verse 4, also stands as a metaphor. If you look at verse 6, which we'll read in a moment, says, For a nation has come up against my land, a powerful one beyond number. And this is what seems to be a potential for future kinds of locust-like cataclysmic events. Indeed, in Israel's history, nations had come up and devoured them like locusts without number. And it also shifts 
our attention to the fact that we ought to recognize that disasters that occur around us, disasters that occur to us, some that may be national or international in scope, are equally from the hand of God. Calamity exposes our mortality. I know last Sunday we heard a wonderful testimony, a wonderful testimony of God's preservation from calamity. Dave and Cass shared their testimony of a very, very close call, rescued from perhaps an irreparable type of calamity. That's a story to tell to their children. And when we experience these things in our own lives, there's stories to tell to our children. See, calamity exposes our mortality, but it also calls us to respond to God's word with sincerity. Verses 5 through 12, there's a threefold pattern of, of calling to respond. Uh, you can see it highlighted, verse 5, you see it awake. Verse 6, lament. And in verse 10, or excuse me, verse 11, be ashamed. There's this call to respond to the calamity of the locusts in a way that, that is appropriate to the one who's, who's bringing it to you. Job's life, we heard Jeremy speak on the topic of Job for a couple of Sundays this fall. He, Job's life teaches us that not all calamity is a consequence of sin that we have personally committed. Calamity is part of this fallen world that we live in. We, we live with a fallen world. Yet some calamity is, though, caused by our sinful choices, either directly or indirectly. I think our society is about ready to reap the fruit of those wicked seeds that were sown in the 1960s. The expressive individualism is now coming home to roost here in America. And we are becoming like Sodom, and we are becoming like Gomorrah. There might be choices that we have made when we were our younger selves that we wish we had never made. Perhaps there were decisions that we made when we were younger, and we, we are not the disciplined person that we ought to be by this point in our lives. Those are calamities of another kind. Perhaps it was an uncontrolled temper when I was younger, or the bitterness that I allowed to fester within my soul. It's brought destruction upon relationships, and it seems as though there's no way out. People only make choices in the moment when they think that the choice that they will make will bring them the happiness that they so desire. And in this, the pursuit of happiness is a storyline, it's a narrative. We think that on ourselves, we, we make decisions that we think will bring us the happiness we want. It's like those burrs that stick to us. How do we get these off of ourselves? Sometimes the burrs are relieved through calamity. And we don't have to look very far in this locust-ridden world to see real personal tragedies. There are party drugs that have promised happiness to youth and to adults that have been caught in despair and depression, and these seem to be the ticket that will take them to a place of happiness until they take something that's been cut with fentanyl. 
It's in Christ alone that our hope is found. It is in Christ alone that our joy is achieved. And so, as we move through these, these warnings, hear also within them the call to respond to Christ, to respond to Him instead of believing the false narratives of this world. In verse 5 through 7, we're going to see the first of these, that we are called to awaken from the slumber of selfish luxury. Verse 5 through 7 says, Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and has splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off the bark and thrown it down, and their branches are made, made white. The sweet wine in verse 5 was a delicacy. It was a, a pr- the first product of the pressed grapes. It was something highly desired because of the sweetness. And there were ways that were designed to try to preserve the sweetness And really, it highlights how sweetness is a luxury that we take for granted. In the book of Amos, the next book, the prophet to northern Israel, he he laid into wealthy women who, who had a liking for their sweet, expensive beverages. He wasn't talking about lattes, though. But really if you stop and think about it, our desire for that which is sweet is a kind of luxury that can cause us to believe a false narrative. That those sweet things that we long for, it will bring us the kind of satisfaction that we so desire. Calamity is designed to awaken people who are dominated by selfish luxury. Joel, he's sounding the alarm. He's, he's saying, it's time for you to wake up. This is like a, a siren that, or like an alarm that goes off at 2 a.m., right? The, the alarm goes off, and it, it, you're not happy when you wake up. But if there's smoke starting to fill the house, you're relieved that that alarm was working. There is, luxury is, is a cancer to any society. And debauchery as described here, is a prelude to eventual destruction. And the love of luxury hastens the destructive locusts that will come. And when they come, they strip off the bark right down to the, to, right down to the white texture of the wooded tree. And it's dangerous, really, to get caught up in the narrative of luxury. No one really, as I said before, really looks at goods and says, you know, these are going to make me happy. Instead, we listen to the misinformation, like the the little things that are dropped in front of us to say, "This this is the story that you really want to be in. And if you have some of these things along the way, you can express to others that you have found where you belong. And it's so dangerous to get caught up in these false narratives of luxury 
because it deceives us into thinking that we are our own. We are not our own. As Christians, we are bought with a price. And why I say, you know, why would it deceive, and the luxury here, deceive these people in Joel's day? Notice that from God's perspective, that the nation has come up in verse 6 against my land. Um, in verse 7, it has laid waste to my fig tree, to my vine. If you were to sit down and ask these people who were expending their wealth on luxuries, they would say, well, I have a right to these because they are mine. And what this is designed to remind us of is that we don't own anything. Naked did we come into this world, and naked we will leave. The narratives of this world tell us that you are king when you are not. You don't own anything. Everything is God's. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 6, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are the Lord's. Happiness is found when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God knows everything that we need. You don't have to fret yourself. He will give you what you need. There is this need to awaken from the selfish luxury. There is a need to weep over relational destruction caused by sin in verse 8 through 10. Read these verses. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom or for you. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn and the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed and the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed and the wine dries up and the oil languishes. Loss of relationship is a very serious, serious calamity. But there are two kinds of relationships that are spoken of in this little poetic line, in these poetic lines. There's one that's more obvious and there's one that's more in the background. The obvious calamity here of relational loss is that of a virgin who with her new husband leave the ceremony, as you will, and they never make it to the airport. They lose control of the car. It rolls multiple times. The man who's driving is ejected through the window and he dies on the scene. This young woman has all of her hopes dashed before they even started. The second calamity is a little bit greater, actually. We might think of the first as the greater, but really the greater is not so obvious. And as sad as it is to see a young bride lose, lose her husband, we may actually suffer a greater calamity if we don't realize that the Lord Jesus Christ is our bridegroom and to lose touch with him is a greater calamity that we would suffer. 
Where do I see this? Well, in verse 9 from the Old Testament picture, we have the priesthood being described of mourning. And why are they mourning? The priests are mourning in verse 9 because the elements that are necessary to have relationship with Yahweh are gone. The ceremonial wine, the ceremonial oil has been destroyed. They can't, they can't go into, um, they're cut off from going into the house of the Lord. That relationship has been disturbed, it has been destroyed. And the loss of joy that's communicated in, in harvest is gone. And here, there is weeping and there's a need to weep over loss of relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, astutely, you will all be remembering that you cannot fully leave the presence of the Lord. But you can damage, you can, you can create distance in that relationship, you personally. As much as it were to lose, in your personal mind, that sweetness of fellowship. I don't know if you are familiar with the metaphor of Jesus knocking on the door of our hearts. Perhaps you have seen this on cards through the years, or you've seen it in pictures. It's actually an allusion to Revelation chapter 3. And actually... I'm sorry to hurt people's opinions on this, but it really has nothing to do with evangelism. It actually, it actually is speaking to a church that has lost its first love. A church that has forgotten how to open its door to her bridegroom. They've become lukewarm. And it's a further allusion back to the book of Song of Solomon, in which, if you know the story of Song of Solomon, it's a pretty detailed romantic book. And there is this, this image in that book, in Song of Solomon 5, of the bride who is dreaming. And in her dream, she's dreaming of her husband knocking at the door. Now, as dreams go, she's knocking over, you know, she's, she's, she's stumbling as she's trying to get herself ready to get to the door, to open the door, to see her husband on the other side. And there's frustration because she can't get the door open, and he's, 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 he's knocking on the door. And then when she opens the door, her husband is not there. And all of these images kind of coalesce together to give us this, this image of the tragedy of a widowed virgin not being able to have relationship with her bridegroom. There's a language of expectation and love that is truly something to, to lament over. A tepid, lukewarm cup of water or a cup of coffee is is horrible. None of us, imagine going, like I, I, I will pour a cup of coffee in my office and I don't know why I will let it get, like sit there for even more than a half hour. But I always imagine that it's hot and when I get ready to pick it up, I'm about ready to puke it out of my mouth. Now we can get all excited over a lukewarm cup of coffee, why is it that we don't get so excited over a lukewarm relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Peter wisely observed in his epistle how the home can be a way in which our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is stifled. He wisely knew that the marriage relationship is a way of reflecting the nature of God into the world. Listen to these words, please. As I was reading these in my office this week, I really was struck by how, how connected the gospel is to marriage. 1 Peter 2, verse 25, the very last verse of chapter 2 says this, For you were straying like sheep, but have now turned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And then, and then we go to chapter 3. Like, like, like just that. And now we're talking about husbands and wives. There is a connection here between wives who are being submissive to their, their shepherd overseer and there is a, a, a quality of the shepherd overseer in the husband who is also taking care of their spouse. Beautiful, harmonious relationship between the one who purchased salvation for us and the relationship that should exist in one's home. Notice it says to the husband, you ought to be doing this so that your prayers may not be hindered. It may be that we are of an ineffectual relationship with our Heavenly Father because we have an ineffectual relationship with our spouses. That's something to lament over. That's something to weep over. Joel, in his message, says a loss of relationship with God is like a virgin who never gets to the honeymoon. That's heavy. There is the last call here in verse 11 and 12, that we are in response to these things, if we see these things in our lives, we are to humble ourselves and accept our responsibility for any wreckage that we have created. Verse 11 and 12 says, Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, the pomegranate, the palm, and the apple, and all tree of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Calamity calls us to respond with sincerity of heart. And this won't happen if we're blaming everyone else for the problems that we are ultimately responsible for. Our culture is becoming very adept at doing the weaponization of victimhood. While people are hurting and have been hurt, that can become a weapon to take away any personal responsibility that someone has. Calamity comes, and when it comes, we must accept our own responsibility, and we must humble ourselves and accept shame. Verse 11 says, be ashamed. Have you ever heard the name Sam Bankman-Fried? 
Is that a name that you would recognize? He's only the most wealthy cryptocurrency person who ever lived, except for when he wasn't. He has been labeled by the media as the disgraced FTX founder. The disgraced FTX founder. If you're not familiar with this, this would be very akin to the Bernie Madoff scandals. Very similar. But unfortunately, by using that term disgraced to describe him, it actually minimizes the personal shame that he actually should feel. Because rather than calling him a fraud, which is what he is, and that would actually produce more shame, they're taking the punch away. And actually, the more we do this and we, we, we relabel our own personal contribution to sin, we're creating a false narrative about ourselves. I used to visit a, a young man in Wayne County Corrections, and he would sit across from me, and he would have tears in his eyes, and he would say to me, Pastor, I am, I am really not that bad of a person. And I had to tell him, yes, you are that bad. In other words, like he, he, did, he didn't want you know, to put his sin nature on a level of personal responsibility. And he felt shame, rightly, but instead of addressing the root of where that shame came from, he created alternative narratives. He was trying to cover over rather than take his sin to Christ. Christ is the one to whom we take our sin and our shame. And a lack of humility to accept our personal responsibility for the wreckage that we have created is built upon these bad narratives that we tell about ourselves. All that we're basically good. And I get what people mean by that. It's like they don't want to do those things, but then they find out that they have done those types of things. And if the want to and the actual don't agree, then we have to realize that maybe we are that bad. Maybe we are sinners in need of a Savior. And really, this is what calamity does. It is, it is God's gracious gift to turn our hearts from the false narratives that we tell ourselves. We need to hear the truth about who we are, and that gives us the opportunity to turn to Christ who we desperately need. Joel tells us in these verses that we are to humble ourselves and to accept responsibility for that which we have done. We need to turn from selfish luxuries. We need to turn from the relational sins that we have created. We need to admit our own personal contribution to what we have done. Obviously, I can't preach the whole book of Joel in one sermon and for that, I'm sure you're thankful. But I have to take note that this is not the whole story. It would be horrible if I actually stopped right here. Because later in the book of Joel, in Joel chapter 2, we see these words as encouragements. The threshing floors that are now empty shall be full of grain. And the vats that are now empty 
shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, and my great army which I send among you. You shall eat plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame again. What an encouragement. We don't like the calamity when it comes. But it shakes us awake to realize that we are, we are mortal. We have a beginning and an end. But we need Christ who has neither beginning nor end and demonstrated that through his own resurrection from the dead. That's who we need. We need the forgiveness and absorption of our sins taken away from ourselves. And from that, we go out and we become changed people. And if we act on that belief, and we consider the seriousness of coming judgments, of God's sovereignty to allow things into our lives, and we become dependent upon the Holy Spirit then we become changed people over time. That is what God desires, and that is the happiness that we so want, that we think we're going to find in other things. Happiness truly comes through change from the inside out, and God makes us who he wants us to be.